Good morning. Today's scripture reading is taken from Luke 7, verses 36 through 50. If you want to follow along in the Pew Bible, it's page 864. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know he would have known who and what sort of woman this is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with them began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Morning, Fellowship. Let's begin with a word of prayer before we dive into that passage together. Father, on this beautiful July 4th day, we, we thank you for all that we have, all that we're privileged to have. We thank you for all those who work to ensure the safety of this country and we thank you uh, for all those who've gone before us uh, so that we still have a place where we can openly proclaim your gospel. Forgive us for when we uh, cower more than our brothers and sisters who don't have that freedom but yet share more than we do. So we ask that this would be um, a time where we're reminded of uh, the stage that we have to share your word. Lord, what good is sharing it if we don't know it? What good is trying to live it if we don't understand it? So we ask that you would help us to get this passage and work it down deep into our hearts so we can live it out for you when we leave these doors. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> what does uh, revival look like? Uh, last night I was privileged to speak to a gathering of young adults um, at a church not too far from here, <clears throat> and they asked me to talk about revival, 
and I asked them, I began by just asking them what, what revival looked like. What does it look like when you see it? They said things like excited, passionate, dancing for joy. I think those are all good things. Uh, how would you describe it? Would you describe it as um, a lot of energy, a lot of passion, a lot of worship? I think we'd all say it's about loving God and loving Him deeply. But how do we get there? How do we get to that place where we, we, we can love God with, with abandon and not, not think about the consequences of loving Him too much in the workplace, at school, in the home? If we could just cast off that fear of, if I, if I really, really got involved at church, or if I really, really uh, just use the gifts that God has given me for Him and how do we get to that place? I want to share with you a story that's found in Luke chapter 7, where Jesus confronts a man who's confused about that very question. And right before them, they see a marvelous display of just a passionate, driving desire for Christ. That starts in Luke chapter 7, it starts in verse 36, which was just read for us. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And when Jesus, when he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table, behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. In this time, uh, you could have public meals. It wasn't the increasingly privatized thing that we experience today. Uh, even 50 years ago, most Americana-style houses had open porches in the front with the swing, and you would sit out there, and the kids would ride the bike down the street, and you say, hey, Tommy, now everybody drives into their closed-off garage with their tinted windows, and you don't know who's living next to you. Uh, back then, things were a lot more open in this culture and this time, and uninvited guests could come to this public dinner. I mean, this, these are Pharisees, known religious leaders, and everybody knows who this young 31, 32-year-old Jesus guy is walking around untrained but preaching and thousands and thousands of people following him. And So this is a high-profile dinner. Doors would be left open and uninvited guests could come in and sit against the wall and, and listen to the conversation between the guest, the host, and the other reputable guests. So it's not shocking that someone comes in. And it's not even that shocking that somebody comes in and washes feet. But something is shocking here. Because as you read through, he's saying there's a dinner. The Pharisee has a dinner. Jesus is reclining at the table in verse 37. And behold, a woman of the city. We don't really use that word behold anymore. But if we did, we'd only use it for certain occasions. If I'm describing to you an experience I had at a restaurant... And, I, and I'm telling you, I, I sat down and I ordered chili, which I often do. I like chili. And the waitress comes and she brings the chili. And behold, there was a spoon in my chili. <laughs> you'd, you'd be like, what, what am I beholding? It, that's norm, isn't it? A spoon normal? You know, isn't that? Well, yeah, I'm just telling you, there's a spoon there. Why'd you say behold? I don't know. 
But if I were to tell you this, I ordered the chili and she's bringing it on the plate and I can see the steam coming out of it. I'm already cracking my saltines. I'm getting ready for this hearty steak and beef chili. And she puts it in front of me and behold, a severed finger. And then you go, what? What'd you say? A severed finger. The chili's in front of me and I behold, I kid you not. There's a, a chopped off index finger sticking out of the chili. What did you do? I'll tell you what I did. I got up and now behold makes sense. So when Luke is writing, it doesn't just drop behold like, and there was a lady that walked in. Behold. And the same shock that you got when I said severed finger, multiply that a little bit. These guys are having their nice quiet dinner and something shocking happens. What's shocking is not that someone came into the house, because I've already explained to you, the scholars that do the background work have told us that's not abnormal. And what's shocking is not even that she's a woman. It's that she's a woman of the city. You know, if, if you bring your girlfriend, your new girlfriend, home to your grandma, and then afterwards she leaves and you hey, grandma, what would you think? I think she's a streetwalker. You wouldn't go, yeah, Grandma, we all walk the streets, but what do you think about her? No, she's not saying she walks the streets as opposed to floating over the streets. No, we all walk streets. She's saying she's a street walker. Right? This isn't a woman who just lives in the city. Luke is saying she's a woman of the city. You know what I'm talking about. She's dirty. And in case you don't get it, he says it plain as day woman of the city who was a sinner. That was the label. I think our translation should put sinner in quotes because it, it, it's a label. It's a scarlet letter that she wears around her neck. It's, oh, her. And so there's a very real and understood uh, us and them chasm, gap between those of us who are the religious type and them, who, if, if he knew who she was, she, he wouldn't dare let her get close, let alone touch his feet and wipe them. Not that person. But something I found interesting about verse 39. After she does all this, this grand display, of this shocking display of wiping his feet and kissing his feet and anointing them with expensive ointment from her expensive jar... Verse 39 says, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she's a sinner. He would know who she is, and he would know what sort. Who speaks to the specific details of what a person is, what a person does. It's the public dossier. It's it's what everybody knows. They could rattle off the things she's done. We don't know exactly what she did, but let's just use our sanctified imaginations a little bit. Who is this lady? If he knew who she was, she left her husband for a tax collector. We all hate tax collectors. And then she left a good Jewish synagogue attending guy for this jerk. And then the tax collector dumped her when she started getting a little older for some younger chick. And then rather than finding another place to stay with her kids, she just left her kids to go beg in the streets. Begging the streets didn't really turn up a lot of money, so she started performing sexual acts with travelers for money. 
She sins. Everybody knows it. And if Jesus knew who she was, then he would know what sort she is. See, you and I, as soon as we see a, a guy with faded haircut, walks with a limp and he's got pants a little bit below his waist, thug, See, I see how you dress, and so I stick you in a category. And so, what's the category? What kind of woman is she? Well, she's a homewrecker. And she's a derelict mom. And she's a whore. Well, that word's dirty. You're supposed to, I think that's, that's the point. That's what they would have labeled her. They wouldn't have tried to glaze it over with some other. She's, that's what she is. That's the kind now, I think so many times we walk away from this passage, this familiar passage to many of us, we walk away going, stupid Pharisees. Jesus wanted to cuddle her and love her and say, don't worry about all the things you did. Everybody else thinks it's dirty, but I don't. Yes, he does think it's dirty. I don't think for a minute that Jesus is going, hey, everything she did is okay. What is the big deal to you? I mean, the rules that she broke weren't the Pharisees' rules. These are Old Testament rules. These are rules Jesus wrote. So, sin is abhorrent to God. And the closer we grow to God, the more sin becomes abhorrent to us. So there should be that shock value. So Simon's problem is not that he sees sin where there is no sin. Oh, Simon, what are you talking about? She's not dirty. What are you talking about, Simon? She's not a sinner. Luke even says she's a sinner. Well, what's Simon's problem then? We know Simon has a problem because the whole rest of this story is Jesus letting him have it. Well, Jesus is going to tell Simon what his problem is, and he's going to tell him using a story. As oftentimes Jesus would, he would use a parable. He would use a story that Jesus kind of makes up. He invents these characters that somehow parallel a situation in life so that the people in the real situation can, from the story, get, get how they should live. And he tells this with the shortest parable that we're going to look at as we move through a series on the parables. Uh, he tells him a story, verse 41. Well, verse 40, Jesus answering him said, Simon... I have something to say to you. And he said, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, a denarius is like a, for them was a month's wage. Right? So somebody owed 50 months wages and somebody owed 500 months Wages. This is a pretty big gap. But both debts were forgiven. Now he asked him the question. The end of verse 42. Now which of them will love him more? You know, which of them is going to sit there and go, wait a minute, I don't owe you 50 denarius anymore? Yeah, you can go. Oh, all right. Um, wow. Thanks. And which of them is going to go, wait, what? What'd you say? It's, it's forgiven. Am I on candid camera? Are you kidding? No, I'm serious. You're forgiven. You're fine. Just go. Uh, I don't get it. Do you want me to, like, you know, do some community service or something? No, you're done. I, I, I have no idea what to say. Well, go tell other people about our bank. Tell them how nice we are. Uh, Mr. Moneylender, I've... I'm going to tell you, I, 
I'm going to tell everybody I know. I'm going to walk the streets proclaiming your name. I'm going to pass your business cards everywhere. I'm going to tell everybody about how gracious you are. This is unbelievable. Okay, which one's going to act that way and which one's going to act the other way? And Simon, not being a complete dolt, he gets it. He was the one that owed a lot. That's the one who's going to act like that. And Jesus said, you, you guessed rightly. You answered correctly. And so Simon gets the point, which is simple. The one who owed much is the one who loves much. And the one who owes just a little bit, eh, will just love a little bit. So Jesus explains the parable. Doesn't just leave it there. He draws a comparison between Simon and the woman that just barged in. He says, you didn't do this, but she did that. And he draws this comparison. And listen to what he says in verse 44. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not kissed, ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Now, Jesus isn't just drawing a simple comparison where he's, look what, she, look what you didn't do, but she did it. Look what you didn't do, but she did it. He, he one-ups it. Not only did she do what you didn't do, but she did it in a grander way. So he says, you didn't give me water for my feet, but she washed my feet with her tears. Right? You didn't give me a kiss, but she didn't stop kissing me since she came in on my feet. You know, because the kiss Jesus is talking about is a, like Italian style, Latino style, like, hey, how you doing? It's like an air kit fake, you know, it's a greeting. Now, she hasn't stopped doing that to my crusty, sandal-wearing, Jerusalem Road, dirty, calloused feet. Jeez. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she anointed me with ointment. The expense just went up from olive oil to an ointment that would have been kept in an alabaster jar. So his point is, she loves this much because she understands how much she's been forgiven. The reason why she barged in here like that and didn't care, but maybe this is her, the, the last thing she owes. Who knows how long she's been saving up and holding on to this treasure, and she just pours it over my feet, and she weeps so much that there's enough liquid there to wash my feet, and she realizes she didn't have a towel, and she doesn't dare dirty the towel of somebody in the house, so she just uses her hair. And this abandon. It's because she loved much. And the reason why she loved much is because she realizes how much she was forgiven. Now, what's Jesus saying to Simon? Is he just simply just describing how things are? Hey, Simon, don't give her a hard time. She was forgiven a lot, so she loves me a lot. But you know, you're not forgiven too much, so you don't love too much. No big deal. Some love a lot, some love a little. It doesn't matter. Is that what he's saying? I mean, is he going into this parable and the two debtors and explaining and Simon, you know, all that just to say, hey, some people will love a lot and some people love a little. What's to eat? Pass the bread rolls. Or is he trying to get at something? I think it's obvious and all commentators that I've looked at and 
Most people that look at this passage find it obvious that he's indicting Simon. He's rebuking Simon. But what is he rebuking him for? He's rebuking Simon for loving little. And Simon, the reason why when I came in here, you didn't do a single thing to greet me or to, to show that you are enjoying my company or that you want to see me or that you're glad that I'm here. The reason why you didn't do any of that is because you don't love me. That's why. And the reason why you don't love me is because you don't think you need forgiveness. That's the problem. So, Simon's problem was self-righteousness. Thinking he's better than others who need Jesus. It's not that he views the woman as a sinner, because even Jesus said in verse 47, hey, her sins are many. They're forgiven. They were many, though. It's not that she was a sinner, or that Simon saw her as a sinner. Simon's problem was that he failed to see himself as one. Simon's problem wasn't that he would go, look at the dirty sins. And Jesus would say, true. But where Simon is wrong is when he goes, that's them though, not me. I'm up here. And Jesus goes, that's where you fail. Because it's not about them. It's about us. And so, Simon categorizes the woman as a sinner. And when you categorize someone as a sinner, it is automatic, simultaneous self-categorization of yourself as not a sinner. When you say them, you're implying us. And when you say them over there are defined by sin, you're saying us over here are not defined by sin. So the way Simon viewed her was correct, but in turn viewing himself as someone who, hey, I'm not, I don't have that problem. And that's where he's wrong. And so he didn't think that she deserved to touch Jesus, but he thought that he deserved to not have to touch Jesus. Now, you shouldn't touch him, but I don't have to do anything. And it's this, it's this two-sided uh, misunderstanding. Uh, I don't want us to miss the point here is that when you and I don't love Jesus deeply, it's because we fail to see how deep our debt is. The, the better you think of yourself, the less you need the cross. And the less you need the cross, the less you are grateful for the cross. The less you're grateful for the cross, the less you'll love Jesus for it. And Paul told us in Romans that God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you don't appreciate that, then you don't appreciate God's love. If you don't appreciate God's love, how can you love him? What does a revival look like? People passionately pursuing Jesus because they love him so much. How should a revival start? Recognizing our debt. It starts with brokenness. It starts with weeping. When I asked those young adults to describe revival, and they said dancing, one of them said dancing with joy. Another one said excitement. Okay? But when we look at this passage, we see something a little different. I agree with those responses. But it begins with not dancing, but weeping. Because when you start with debt, you don't want to dance. When you start with what you owe, you don't want to rejoice. You break. Because there's nothing you can do to pay that debt back. 
as long as you feel like there's something you can add to it, Jesus, I only owe a few denarii if you could just help me out there. Oh, thanks. If you go, I owe so much, I couldn't begin. In five lifetimes, I could never work off this debt. And then that debt is forgiven, that's when you love. And so, when you and I don't love Jesus deeply, it's because we don't think we need him. When I was growing up, one of my favorite comic book characters was Batman. And one of the reasons why I liked Batman was because it was, there's something about him that's kind of raw, something about him that's kind of, I liked it. You know what it was? He's the only one out of those comic books that I had spread out in my bed that didn't have supernatural powers. I mean, everyone classifies him as superhero, but he had to train to get to superhero status. He had to learn how to use weapons and invent gadgets, and he had to move his money around, and he had to do push-ups and pull-ups and lift weights and practice martial arts and beat up on Robin from time to time so he could stay sharp for the gangsters in the alleyway. It's the same reason why I, didn't, I never really liked Superman that much. I mean, I watched the movies and they're fun, but I never collected one comic of Superman because uh, he never had to train a day in his life. In fact, why do they draw Superman so buff? He should just be a scrawny guy. You know why Superman is strong? He's from another planet. Something about Superman's molecular structure and ours is so radically different that what to you feels like a thousand pounds to him is a pencil. It's not because he did so many curls. It's because from his planet, this house weighs like a pencil weighs. And so when he comes into our planet, gravity is different for him. His skin is made up of a different DNA structure. So bullets pierce our skin, but it doesn't pierce his. It's not because he flexes his chest. It's just because that's how his skin is made. Superman didn't work a day in his life to get that. I think that speaks to the American dream. The reason why I like Batman is the reason why we love celebrating July 4th and our independence. It's the reason why I'm so proud of my parents. My mom was the first one to learn English, and she first went to school. She didn't know how to raise her hand. asked to go to the bathroom. But learn English. Break through that barrier. Pick yourself up by the bootstraps, and even an immigrant family can be successful in America. Isn't that the American dream? And we love that, and that's good. I love that. But we try to take that and transfer it into the kingdom of God, and it doesn't work. There's no such thing as picking yourself up by the bootstraps in God's kingdom. You can't. There's no such thing as measuring your debt between you and God and doing something to get yourself out of that debt because you can't. It's an abysmal, never-ending pit. You can't crawl out. And so in God's kingdom, there are no Bruce Wayne's. In God's kingdom, there are no Batmans. When you become a Christian, you become a Superman or a Superwoman. You know why? It's not because you did a bunch of Bible studies. It's because now you're born from another planet. You're born from a different world. You're a citizen of a different kingdom. And you don't operate by the world's rules anymore. You've been injected with a supernatural serum called grace. And you can only find that in Jesus Christ. You know why this guy, Simon, had a problem? Why he couldn't understand himself? Why he had a false view of himself? It's because he had a false view of who Jesus was. 
to make this a nice, tidy sermon, I was going to leave this out, but when Luke is really emphasizing something, you got to pay attention. Partly because he writes scripture, partly because his name is Luke. But we need to pay attention to what he emphasizes, right? Some of you may have noticed we didn't finish reading the story. Look at how the story ends. Verse 48. After he explains to Simon this deal about forgiveness, he turns to her. This is the first words that are spoken to her by Jesus in this setting. Apparently they've met before. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? You remember last week when we talked about in Mark 4, Jesus calmed the storm. What did the disciples say? Who is this guy? You see that throughout the Gospels. The Gospel writers are trying to get you to get who Jesus is. He's not just a nice prophet. He's not a nice man. He just wasn't so wise teacher. He's not a Jewish version of Socrates or something else. But who is this guy that forgives sins? Now, you and I on this landscape, because a lot of us are familiar with, say, the Catholic Church, and we're a little bit familiar with the notion of a priest absolving someone of sins. Say this many Hail Marys, do this, you're absolved. But for the Jews, that would have been scandalous. I mean, you come here and say, Pastor, I've, I've sinned. And then I go, hmm, bake me an apple pie. And you go, here. I go, hmm, that's pretty good. You're forgiven. That's scandalous, right? Why? Because only God can forgive sins. I mean, throughout the Bible, it's a replete theme that sin, even though it damages other people, is first and foremost between you and God. So when David sinned with Bathsheba, and then he writes a psalm because he's convicted, Nathan came and said, here, let me tell you a story. Oh, that's a story. That's a bad guy. Yeah, you're the bad guy. Ooh, and then he feels that conviction. He writes a psalm. And in that psalm, he says, against you and you alone have I sinned to God. He said, what about Bathsheba? And then the child, and then Uriah, the husband, he got killed. And What about the whole nation? You're supposed to be out there fighting with them. You're on rooftops being a peeping Tom, jerk. Well, yeah, he hurt a lot of people. But at the bottom core of what sin is, it's an offense against God. It's not wrong because people are hurt by it. It's wrong first and foremost. Because it's against God. They understand that. So when Jesus looks at her and says, your sins are forgiven, they're going, what? He's claiming to be God. And just to rub it in, he looks at her and says again, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now he's saving people? You know, he was already putting the seed out there. Because if you, if you were to back up and look, uh, there's something I skipped over a little bit. When Jesus said, hey, if, if he were a real prophet, he would know what kind and who this woman is. Simon said that to himself. He was thinking it. And then Jesus responds out loud. In other words, not only do I know what kind and who she is and her whole dossier, I know what you're thinking, pal. Even your thoughts aren't private to me. So Jesus is claiming his deity. And Luke is emphasizing that because that's the bottom line of what Simon misses. The reason why he thinks of himself as righteous is because he doesn't get who he's sitting next to. Hey, that's righteousness. One painful story, and I'll leave you with this. For me, and I brought it up to some of you before in another setting. 
My mom used to be good friends with another family, and their youngest daughter, Cassie, was, I think, a couple younger, year, younger than me, a couple years younger than me, and she had cerebral palsy. And I don't remember all the ramifications of, of that, but I do remember she walked with a limp, and one of her hands was, was kind of pulled in, and she couldn't really do much. She almost had no dexterity with the hand, and, and she couldn't really use that arm. And so she would open doors this way, and she'd walk around and play with her dolls, and there wasn't much she could do with that arm. And we would take her, if we go to the movies, we'd take her, and if we go to the Y and you know, use the pool or something, we'd, sometimes we'd take her. And oh, Lucas, get the door for Cassie. Oh, Lucas, Cassie dropped something. Pick it up for her. And, okay, okay. And one day we get in the back seat of the car. My mom starts the engine, and me and Cassie are in the back seat. And I grab my seatbelt and click it in. And Cassie's struggling with her seatbelt because she's got to go from the right to cross her chest and click it to the left. And her right arm is not working, and her left arm just doesn't have the reach. And my mom notices that she's struggling. I don't. And mom says something like, uh, Lucas, help Cassie put her seatbelt on. Ugh! I thought to myself, it's so annoying. I mean, why do, she's got this physical malfunction. Why do I have to drop everything all the time? Just because she's got the messed up arm, I got to use my two arms to constantly serve her? And I didn't say that out loud. But if Jesus were there reading my mind, it would have been something like that. And mom graciously, and I'm not saying that cause, just because she's here, but she said something. I don't remember exactly what she said, but it was some light rebuke about, hey, she can't do it, Lucas. She can't do all the things you can do. And right there in that moment, you know, the little angel supposedly that sits on your shoulder and he tapped me and I'm like, yeah. And he goes, you're a jerk. <laughs> I felt like the biggest slime ball on the planet. You know what's ironic about that story? Is that night when we finally dropped Cassie off and get home, I probably ate dinner. I don't remember ever missing a meal. <laughs> and guess who made dinner? Mom. Then I go to bed in my nice room with all my toys and no siblings I have to fight over them with. Get a good night's sleep and wake up the next morning and I've got to go to my nice private Christian school where I get special attention because there's only 12 of us and one teacher. and The nice situation. Harder for me to get in trouble because the teacher's looking at me the entire time. How do I get to school? My dad drives me. See, I need them to make dinner for me because I can't reach the stove to cook. I need my dad to drive the car because my feet don't reach the pedals. And I don't know if I'm wrong, but I remember that car, like it was so old. It was power steering even out because that thing was like, how's he even steering that thing? I couldn't steer that huge wheel, Buick Skylark boat. I couldn't manipulate that thing. And so here I am looking sideways going, why do I have to do all this stuff for her? Why can't she do it herself? And I'm one of the biggest dependents in the world. And see, as you and I look to the left of us and look to the right of us, we can say, look, that person hasn't sinned as much as me. Or, ooh, that person sinned a lot more than me. And as long as we look sideways, we could think, of, we could think nicely of ourselves. But when you look up, you can't. Because when you look at Jesus, His perfection, His holiness, His righteousness, 
You realize why he was the only one that could bridge that gap? Because he's the only one that has no dirt on him at all. And in light of Jesus, we're all sinners. When we recognize that, we can begin to love deeply. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give us the grace, the discernment, the wisdom that we need to understand who we are and what kind we are in light of your holiness and perfection, your righteous standard. The prophet Isaiah has taught us that all of our righteous works are as filthy rags, polluted garments. Nothing we offer to you is right or holy such that we can pick ourselves up by the bootstraps to get to you without Jesus. Father, we ask that you would give us a deep sense of our wretchedness, not so we could just feel here, leave here feeling yucky, but so that that could be step one, completely torn down, and see ourselves like the woman of the city. And maybe we didn't do her particular sins, but to categorize ourselves in the same light of desperately needing a rescue mission from you. And then once we recognize that so deeply, so profoundly, maybe for many of us we need to weep for the first time, literally weep at the prospect of how greatly we owe you. And then to understand your forgiveness, and then to understand the cross and your love so that we can then love you deeply. And so when you ask for little things of us, like talk to your coworker about me. Now quit that habit. Break that relationship. But suddenly those things are, are, are nothing. We'll spill the most expensive ointment. We'll kiss the dirtiest feet to love you. Do that for us this morning and work that deep into our hearts as we sing this last song together for you. In fact, I almost forgot communion. Father, as we take this communion, what a marvelous image of what you've done for us. So I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward. Father, we ask that you remind us that as these elements are being passed out in silence, Mike, I'm going to ask you to hold off for a minute. As the elements are being passed out in silence, Lord, we ask that you would help us to recognize our wretchedness, ask you for the forgiveness needed to cleanse us, to make things right, so that we can partake together in good conscience. The ushers can come forward.